As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Hello there, welcome back to the show. I'm Justin Briley, Apologetics and Theology Editor for Premier Unbelievable. And Unapologetic is all about helping you grow in confidence in thinking through and sharing your Christian faith. And today we begin a new set of shows featuring the legend that is Professor John Lennox, Professor Emeritus of Mathematics and Philosophy of Science at Oxford University, a widely published speaker who's debated many of the leading atheists of our age. And you'll hear some stories in our conversation about those encounters and as you'll hear, I got to sit down with him at his, at his own Green Templeton College in Oxford in the wonderful environment of the Observatory Tower there. We talk about his most recent book, Cosmic Chemistry. That's our conversation on science, God and atheism coming up over the next three episodes of the show. We're using this with the kind permission of SBCK, the publisher for whom this was originally recorded. Please do leave us a positive rating and review in your podcast provider. These are the early shows of this new podcast. It always helps to help others discover the show and to get it out there. And if you want more from Premier Unbelievable, go and check out our website, premierunbelievable.com. That's the the home for all things including this show unapologetic but all of our other podcast videos and resources Uh, you can find our recent conference there ready to purchase as a digital download Uh, you can book for our next live online event on the 12th of july conversation on millennials and gen z are they ready to believe in god again with john mccray and michaela peterson daughter of famed psychologist jordan peterson she's got her own fascinating story of coming to faith recently uh, and a strong following among young people herself so you can be part of that you can ask your questions it's free to attend you just need to register again that's premierunbelievable.com or go to the links with today's show for now enjoy the conversation this is actually a book that had its first life in the book God's Undertaker, which I think was probably published nearly 15 years or so ago. Um, Why did you write that book first time round, and what's made you want to revisit it this time round? Well, for many years, I've been interested in the whole question of the relationship between science and the God question. After all, I was a mathematician, and even in school days, I, I was curious where does mathematics fit into science? Uh, And where does science fit into the whole picture of our understanding of the universe? Does it tell us everything, or or do we need more? And I had been interacting with the whole science-religion debate since my middle teens. I came across a book by 
a chemist who taught in the Cambridge Tech called R.E.D. Clark, and he really sparked my mind to start thinking about these things. I was simply fascinated to read a scientist who believed in God and who felt beyond that, that science was giving evidence of the existence of God. So it started very early. And then, because I was in the university world, I began increasingly to be asked to give talks relating my faith in God to my work in mathematics and so on. And people began to say, you ought to put this in a book. So the pressure grew. And of course, the topic grew. So in the end, I gave in and I decided to write this book Mm. called God's Undertaker of Science Buried God, which was my first attempt actually at a book in this genre. Mm. And and I I really enjoyed reading it the first time round. Obviously, 15 plus years later on, a lot lot of water under the bridge. But essentially, do you feel that those those issues you were speaking into are still live today, especially the new atheists, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett and others, who were saying God and science don't mix very explicitly? Yeah, that's right. They were saying it then, and they're still saying it, although perhaps not quite so convincingly (laughs) now. And what I find is there is enormous interest. I suppose it's unreasonable to judge it just by audience size, but since the lockdown, for example, doing Zoom conferences all over the world, the the attendance at Mm. them and the questioning is all there. And perhaps it's even more intense than it was before because people have, with the passage of time, less background in these things. Mm. What were some of the key challenges that you were meeting when you wrote the book first time round and and that you addressed today? Specifically, of course, The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins had a huge reception, a best-selling book all over the world, and very much putting the case that God has been defeated, essentially, by scientific progress. Um, What were you meeting, I suppose, in Oxford, obviously, as a contemporary of Richard Dawkins teaching here? Were you finding that that kind of view was being expressed in the student body by other academics? Were you meeting it generally when you went around? Oh, I often heard people say, I'm a Dawkins man, (laughs) even (laughs) if they hadn't read his stuff. (laughs) And what I found myself doing was taking it seriously. I I felt it's very important not to just have a knee-jerk reaction. I don't believe that stuff. But to read what they had to say, take it seriously, analyze it, and see if there was an adequate response to it. Mm. And what I discovered, in a way to my amazement, is that some of the intellectual foundations, indeed many of them, of Dawkins-type arguments were, were, were very shaky. I mean, you mentioned the book The God Delusion, and delusion is a psychiatric term. And to my amazement, I discovered that Dawkins, using this concept, had never consulted any leading psychiatrists who disagreed with him profoundly mm. on the idea of God being a delusion. And that old Freudian argument, Uh, which he used and felt it really dismissed God, he couldn't see Mm. that actually it's a double-edged sword. There's a wonderful psychiatrist in Germany, Alfred Lutz, um, who wrote a book called 
a brief history of the Great One, eine kleine Geschichte des Größten. And he said, you know, if there is no God, then Freud's argument is brilliant. God is a delusion if there is no God. Mm. But of course, mm. if there is a God, then atheism is a delusion. Yeah. And the point is, the bottom line, which I felt was really important, and I've written about it, is that Freud can't help you when it comes to the question, is there a God or not? Mm. And Dawkins had totally bypassed that. And what I found on close investigation was that even atheist writers were getting a little bit upset and even ashamed of mm. the kind of thing that Dawkins wrote, people like mm. Michael Ruse mm. and so on. So I felt it was necessary to clear up what were misunderstandings even of the nature of science, which I was surprised to find in a writer who is a scientist, but also misunderstandings about the nature of God. Yes. They were denying the existence mm. of God mm. in whom mm. nobody believed. Mm. Mm. And you've done that not only in writing, but in discussion and debate with some of these key names over the years. I remember very well sitting in the Natural History Museum in Oxford uh, when you were on stage with a giant T-Rex towering over yourself and Richard Dawkins, <laughs> debating some of these issues. Looking back on some of those encounters, um, what do you think has been the value of those? Uh, and what, what were some of the key arguments and points that were being debated in those? I think they were very valuable. They were terrifying experiences, <laughs> of course, especially that particular one, because... The difficulty was Dawkins and Hayat somehow to maintain a, a conversation without mm. a great deal of direction, which mm. is what he wanted, I, I believe. Mm. But the, there was a lot of pressure, I, I felt, in the sense that here you are, uh, and you're representing God in a way, and, mm. and so you want to get the thing right. And I feel we did get some good arguments but what I was advised by a very senior newspaper writer in this country, very well-known person, he said, look, make sure when you enter one of these debates that when it's finished, you have said what you want to say. Don't simply be reactive. And that mm. was hugely impressive. Mm. Mm. And what has encouraged me through the years is that the number of people again and again who write to me who say that was the beginnings of them finding their way to a deep uh, mm. Christian faith. Mm. Mm. And even on that evening, mm. there was at least one research scientist who started her way to, to Christianity. Gosh. Gosh. So it's the net result. People often say, well, you didn't convert Dawkins. No, <laughs> although I don't think conversion of people like that is impossible. There was a man called Saul of Tarsus after all. <laughs> But the point is to do what, to be fair to him, both Dawkins and I wanted to do. Let's get this into the public space. Yeah. And let's trust people to make up their own minds. Let's at least give them the evidence. Mm, and I mm. feel with all the mistakes I made, and I have got 20-20 uh, hindsight on it, <laughs> all the things I could have done better. And the, the thing I remember so well about that the Natural History Museum, as I sat under the T-Rex, I suddenly remembered that Oxford Natural History Museum had been built with profits from OUP's sale of Bibles. Mm. 
But I couldn't pinpoint it. And I thought, if I say this, and it was going on in my mind all the time, I may have it wrong. And I knew Dawkins had worked there. Mm. So I said it as a question. Wasn't this building dedicated to the glory of God? And so on. He said, absolutely not. And he was wrong, of course. <laughs> I couldn't find any information in the foyer, no information. So I went into the debate with that one thing that I would so dearly love to have uh, presented there. Uh, yes, well, benefit of hindsight, isn't it? Um, it's interesting, though, because the, the, the Natural History Museum is, is essentially designed on the model of a classic Gothic church, it isn't is, it? Yes. So it's almost a temple to science and to some extent represents what Dawkins and co. have said, which is science has replaced God yes. as an explanation. And indeed, their, their contention is that if religion and Christianity specifically has done anything, it's slowed the progress of science and our understanding of the world and the universe. What's your response to that obvious sort of objection to Christianity? Well, I like quoting the venerable Richard Swinburne, who's one of our top philosophers. He says, science explains. I postulate God to explain why science explains. I think the point is, use the term uh, science as explanation. And one of the things I do in my book is to really tease out what do we mean by explanation? Mm. And what I fear, and I know in fact from reading them, that many of the so-called new atheists who are now uh, geriatric atheists <laughs> um, think is that God explanation and the scientific explanation are essentially the same and therefore they compete. And I often say that is making a category mistake because the science explanation is really dealing with the how or the, the why of function, if you like. Why is that bit here, not mm. there? Whereas the God explanation deals with the ultimate meaning and purpose. And I often say, look, God no more competes with science as an explanation of the universe than Henry Ford competes with the law of internal combustion as an explanation of the motor car. They are complementary explanations. Mm. And what fascinates me is sometimes when I'm in schools, I put this to kids. Here are two explanations of the motor car, Henry mm. Ford and the laws of physics mm. and internal combustion. And I say, choose, which is the true explanation? But, sir, you need both. Why Dawkins cannot see that? Mm. But if you insist in saying that God is the same kind of explanation, then, of course, there's an inevitable but totally unnecessary clash. And even worse, I discovered, and I've written quite a lot about this, that if you think that God is a kind of gap, God mm. of the gaps, mm. I can't explain it, therefore God did it. So that God takes over where science leaves off, and as science advances, God gets completely squeezed out. Now, of course... If you define God to be a God of the gaps in this way, of course he's in conflict with science by definition. Mm. But God is not a God of the gaps. He's God of the whole show, yeah. of the bits we can explain and of the bits we can't explain. So when Newton, for example, discovered his law of gravitation and wrote to Bentley that he thought his work might be a pointer towards a divine intelligence, he didn't say, 
certainly didn't, of course, say, I've got a law of gravitation, I don't need God. Mm. No, he said, what a brilliant God who did it that way. Mm. And it's that ability to see that God is the God of the whole show. I often say to audiences, have you ever noticed the first sentence in the Bible? In the beginning, God created the bits of the universe we don't yet understand. (laughs) Which, of course, is nonsense. But that is the kind of God that Dawkins was projecting. And that God is a delusion. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Let's talk about the doctrine of creation, because there's an interesting point in the book where you say, far from hindering the progress of science, the Judeo-Christian doctrine of creation actually spurred it on. Can you explain how that's so? Yes, that has been one of the most interesting things for me. I got to know John Hedley Brook in Oxford, who was the first professor of science and religion. And he was a consummate historian, a brilliant historian of science. And he taught me that one of the most important approaches to this whole debate is from the historical perspective. That Mm. sets things in order. And one of the most interesting questions posed by historians of science is, they noticed, it's very easy to see, that the pioneers, let's think of Galileo, Kepler, Newton, Clark, Maxwell, Babbage, Faraday, all of these people, Boyle, were believers in God. Mm. And they represent the peak of the explosion of what we would call modern science in the 16th and 17th centuries. And so they naturally ask the question, is there any relation between the two? And some of the greatest thinkers, particularly Sir Alfred North Whitehead, came to the conclusion, yes, there's a deep connection. It's to do with the medieval belief in God, as Whitehead said. And Lewis, C.S. Lewis, whom I'm old enough to remember, actually, lecturing, he made a very powerful point, I think, summing up Whitehead's work. He said, men became scientific. Sadly, there were no women scientists in those <laughs> mm. days. We've, we've mm. redressed that balance. Men became scientific because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. In other words, there's a deep connection. And I often put it provocatively that I am not remotely ashamed of being both a scientist of sorts and a believer in God because arguably it was the Judeo-Christian tradition that gave me my subject. Mm. And Nobel Prize winners like Melvin Calvin, he said, you know, what is the origin of this conviction that Mm. there's order in the universe? Mm. He said, I find it in the Hebrew tradition going back thousands of years. And that is the basis for the rise of modern science. And it's not only that, because it's arguable uh, from the biblical perspective that it teaches that the universe is contingent. Mm. That is, it could have been otherwise. Mm. And so if you want to find out what it's like, you go and look. Now, one of the biggest moves in the history of science came when Kepler abandoned the thinking that had dominated European science for millennia, actually, of Aristotle, which was you start with philosophical principles, you apply them to the universe. In other words, you have a concept of perfection. Perfect motion is circular. Mm. So you've got to discover that the perfect 
motions of the perfect planets and stars beyond the moon mm. must be circular. You try circles, they don't work. Then you put circles upon circles upon circles, epicycles and so on. And Kepler, in an utterly revolutionary step, said, why don't we just go and look and see what it's like? And he very soon came to the conclusion <laughs> that the planets move in ellipses, equally perfect with sun as focus. And it's that idea which is thoroughly biblical, together with the doctrine of creation. And where the doctrine of creation comes in, of course, is the obvious one. There was a beginning. Mm. And science has confirmed that since those early days. And it raises the question of a cause. And therefore, as a pretty obvious inference to a best explanation, you have God as cause being a very highly plausible explanation mm. of the existence of the universe compared with the kind of explanation I've had in more recent years to face coming from the likes of Stephen Hawking and Lawrence Krauss. And yet many people are ignorant of the Judeo-Christian origins yes. of modern science, the ways that many of those great scientists were believers and saw their faith as consistent with and actually you know, compelled by. Uh, but yet, the, the conflict narrative still persists, especially from those new atheist writers. And you're more likely to hear about some conflict between Galileo and the church and the way the church stood in the way of you know, scientific progress. I, what, what do you do with those kinds of stories? Well, I analyzed them. You know, it's, it's very interesting. I, I, years ago, I was invited to give the very first lecture on this kind of topic in the University of Novosibirsk in Siberia. And I had an audience. The front row looked to me to consist of KGB colonels, really. And the talk was, a mathematician explains why he believes in God. And I related this fact about Galileo and Kepler and so on. And I noticed a frostiness settling over the audience. And they got angry. And I don't like angry audiences. You know, so I stopped and I, addressing the rather prominent-looking figure in the middle. I said, excuse me, but you look angry. Why are you angry? And he stood up and he said, of course I'm angry. Why weren't we told before that these men believed in God? And I started to laugh, actually. I said, can't you guess? It didn't fit in with the atheism that has been behind your culture. Mm. And you know, they didn't know that these early pioneers believed in God. But the very interesting thing is the one you now bring up mm. is that one of those pioneers, particularly Galileo, has often been used to push what we now call the conflict narrative, that mm. science and God are incompatible. And I'm indebted to people like John Brooke uh, and others who've analyze this in detail. Now, John's a very careful historian, but he comes out with a conclusion that would concur with many others, that the Galileo story cannot be used to drive a conflict metaphor. First of all, Galileo was no atheist challenging the ignoramuses in, in the Roman Catholic Church. Galileo was a believer in God when he started, and he was a believer in God when he finished. And the things that irritated people about Galileo, and there were many, we'll come to those in a moment, but I think the key issue 
with Galileo was there he was in the name of science, and he was questioning what was established wisdom for the church, yes. Why? Because they had gotten the bandwagon of Aristotle, mm. the view that the earth was the center and it didn't move. And the fact is that the first people that challenged Galileo, as I understand from having read most of the literature on it, was not the church at all, but the philosophers. They were against it. Mm. So it was a conflict about worldview And the church had jumped on the bandwagon because they felt the Bible would support that worldview that the earth didn't move, the sun moved, but the earth didn't move. They later reversed that, of course. So that to regard that as God versus science is is false. Mm. Uh, The second thing is that Galileo insisted on writing in Italian rather than in Latin. And that irritated people, but not so much as when he wrote his famous book, he put the views of the then Pope, who had been his friend, (laughs) into the words of a character called Simplicio, the fool. And of course, for PR, that was an absolute disaster. (laughs) And you know, if you read Davos Abel's wonderful book, Galileo's Daughter, you'll see that there's just no evidence that that Galileo was a non-believer. There was a professor of the history of science, Colin Russell, at the Open University. He he once wrote a very interesting piece where he said, this conflict myth is so against history that the thing that needs to be explained is where it possibly could have come from. Mm. Galileo certainly can be used for it, and neither can the famous debate that took place in the Natural History Museum where the aforementioned debate between... Dawkins and myself took place between Bishop Wilberforce and Thomas Henry Huxley. But why did that sort of anti-religious, pro-science conflict narrative emerge then around, I suppose especially around the time of Huxley and co, there there was a sense in which, was it a feeling that Darwinism now needed to trump any idea of design in biology? What what was going on? I think this is a very complex thing. Mm. It's a very interesting thing because... You have, going back further, you have Newton Mm. and his wonderful laws that led people to think that the universe is like a great machine Mm. and that is determined to run on these fixed laws. And that tended to push God right to the background, to a kind of deism. God started it. The machine is like clockwork. It's ticking away. And, of course, inevitably especially with the rise of the French intellectuals and the Enlightenment in France, uh, where they discovered that the best way of disagreeing with people was to cut their heads off and you stop the disagreement, Mm. was an incipient atheism that was fueled massively by a corrupt uh, Mm. church. Mm. So a lot of sociological factors were playing there. But then there was the rise of an elite of scientists, of whom Huxley was one. He was dead against these amateur Mm. clergymen who sat in lovely benefices out Mm. in the country in Oxfordshire here and studied butterflies and worms and this kind of stuff. Some of them were very learned people, you see. Wilberforce was one of Mm. those. Mm. But Huxley wanted a professional scientific elite. He wanted to turn the churches into temples to the goddess of wisdom, Mm. Sophia, and all this kind of thing. 
And so he pushed that end. And the debate with Wilberforce was skewed in terms of reportage, really by Huxley and his friends. Now, I have read the whole of what Wilberforce wrote. And the amazing thing is that Wilberforce himself states that he is not going to argue against Darwin on the basis of the Christian worldview. That's what he explicitly Mm. refuses to do. He said, I'm going to do it on the basis of science. And Darwin's comment was, he has uncommonly cleverly pointed out some of the weaknesses in my theory. Mm. So reports, there are very few that exist. Mm. And they say that they roughly had equals in, in what they did. But again, Colin Russell in his article says, you cannot use this to drive a conflict mm, narrative. Mm, mm. Far more complex yeah, than that. Yeah. And very much Huxley was driving, let's get rid of these amateur mm. vicars who were scientists. Well, we'll pick up this conversation with John Lennox again next time. A link to Cosmic Chemistry is with the show notes today. And you can find out more about all the other podcast videos and learning resources from Premier Unbelievable at our website, brand new website, premierunbelievable.com. That includes links to the live big conversation coming up on the 12th of July and our 2022 conference download too. If you want more from John, why not stop by the training and events section of the website? You can enroll in our Confident Christianity course. It's got some great material from John from previous unbelievable conferences that you can engage with there. Again, all the links are with the show today. Premierunbelievable.com is the website for now. Thanks for being with me on this episode of Unapologetic. We'll be back with more from John next time. But in the interim, please do share the episode with others you think will enjoy it. Leave us a rating and a review. Always helps. And we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.